Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my own life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may receive my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Last words are important. Maybe you've had the opportunity to be with a passing family member or friend to hear their last words and hold on to them dearly. Maybe they expressed how much they loved you, encouraged you. What would your last words be? Would it be of hope and encouragement to those around you? Or would it be something new, something you've always felt but never had the guts to express? Would your words line up with what you've been telling them all along? Would your life match the message you'd give in your last words? Last words are important and often have more weight to them. 
Samwise Gamgee, the hobbit companion of the famous Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, has his own share of final words to his friend that he bled and cried with. They near the end of their journey of taking the powerful ring to destruction, but Frodo is on the brink of despair. He weakly cries out that he can't continue, that he can no longer go forward, and Sam responds with this last speech of encouragement. He says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And Frodo asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. In Acts 20, Paul is giving his last words to the elders from Ephesus. He doesn't think he'll see them again, and he doesn't have a ton of time with them. And so he gives this emotional address, and in it, he says and he thinks there's something worth fighting for, something worth the tears, the trials, the sacrifice, the imprisonment, something worth continuing on at whatever cost, even the cost of his life. If you haven't already opened up to Acts 20, go ahead and head there. It's on page 929 of the Pew Bibles. Our narrative starts in verse 17, but we're going to focus on specifically what Paul says to the church leaders. Paul's been traveling through uh, Greece and Asia Minor, visiting the churches that they helped plant it as he's on his way back to Jerusalem, which as he says here, he's expecting and knowing he's going to be arrested. This address follows the format of actually a lot of his letters that we have in the New Testament. Yet this is the only sermon in Acts of Paul that addresses believers. The rest of them are to people that aren't a part of the church yet. And so Luke is kind of giving us a peek into his encouragement that he's giving these leaders and likely what he's also encouraged the other churches with as we see the pattern of him traveling through to these other churches. We get to look in and see his final words. These final words are important. There's something worth fighting for, and it's something worth reminding. At the beginning and end of this address, we see the disposition of the gospel worker. He starts by saying, you yourselves know, referring back to saying, you, you've, you've been with me. This isn't new to you, right? With tears, with trials, I didn't shrink back from declaring the gospel, from teaching the truth. As he does with really a lot of his letters, he grounds what he says in what he does and how he's lived. This isn't just how he starts the letter, right? But he actually continues all the way through this little address as well. So much so that by the end, this is kind of a point that he's trying to make. In fact, of the 22 verses that deal with Paul's exhortation to these elders, seven describe his past conduct with them, and five deal with the future dangers that await him in Jerusalem. Paul's disposition and his exhortation are clearly connected. There's something worth fighting for, and my life has clearly shown it. 
We see him remind him all the way throughout this discourse as well. Verse 25, he says, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 31, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Again, this theme of these tears and this boldly proclaiming the gospel, not shrinking back. But not only that, he ends this entire message here with a similar conclusion, saying, again, you yourselves know. He didn't covet their physical wealth, but he served and met his own needs. So two things to note about this disposition. It was one of humble service and fearless speaking. Humble service and fearless speaking. He was humbly serving the Lord and the church, but fearlessly proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming and teaching the truth. Both actions and words, both living among and leading ahead. I think an easy question to ask ourselves at this point is, what is my disposition to gospel work? What is my posture towards living and sharing the gospel? Many of us are now neatly equipped with a gospel explanation. Are we fighting for this gospel to be proclaimed in our life? It's not only going to be a battle of opposition, but it's also a battle of our comfort. Is this my disposition? Does it look like this? Is this my posture? If we were to ask it another way, is this my highest aspiration? If it's not my highest aspiration, what is? And is that worth fighting for? It starts with this type of disposition, this type of posture. So we have to ask ourselves where we are beginning, where we are starting. He concludes his entire admonition with tying his words into Christ's words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So we see him tie his words to his life, but then he ties his life to Christ's words. He says, in all things I have shown you, we must help the weak. And remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive. As we head into this season of giving, I think it's easy and natural for us to think of this exchanging of gifts. And many of us have been in that position where we give someone a gift or an experience or something that really meets a need, changes their life, and you felt that joy that you just don't get from receiving a gift, right? My uh, kids are starting to be getting to the age where they enjoy gifts and they see the value in them and also who's giving them to them. They also enjoy uh, traditions and family rhythms. It was so joy-filled for me to see our kids this past week enjoy the Christmas and Thanksgiving traditions uh, that we've been starting to put in place. So much more joy than I could ever get from any Black Friday deal, right? But I think Paul's reference here goes much deeper than the simple exchanging of gifts or even experiences. He has demonstrated that it's better to not just give gifts, but to give of his entire life. And in quoting the words of Jesus, he brings to mind the example of Jesus. He too gave a farewell speech to his disciples, who would then go on to build the church. He too would journey to Jerusalem for his arrest. And ultimately, he gave the greatest example of giving his life. 
giving his life for the church, the gospel itself. Jesus sacrificing his life for you, for me. Paul's example, he's rooting it in Christ's example. And our motivation, our reason to fight and proclaim this gospel comes from Christ himself, of how it is more blessed to give. Gospel work doesn't just require neat packages to give when we want and in the way that we want. But life itself, often not in a neat package and not when we want. What is your gospel work posture? Paul goes on to explain and expand on this cost. In the next section, we see ongoing gospel work and its cost. There was a cost to his gospel work as we see the opposition that he faces. He mentions it a lot here. In verse 19, we hear of the Jewish plots against Paul. Yet in 21, he says he's remaining faithful to proclaiming the gospel. Here in 23, he talks about these future imprisonments and afflictions. And then later in 28 through 30, he mentions these fierce wolves that will be coming after Paul leaves and attacking the church. There is opposition happening. He mentions it here. But it's also a common theme throughout Acts. If we were to step back a little bit and to see the theme that Luke is weaving all the way throughout this, we can see this isn't just a one-time thing. This is something that's been building all the way through. All the way from the beginning where he says, hey, the gospel's gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as the gospel goes forth, opposition follows. And opposition really is what pushes it to continue on. Let's just do a brief overview of even just Paul's life as it starts in Acts 13. Acts 13, they opposed a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus in Paphos, but then they got driven out of Antioch by the Jewish religious leaders. In Acts 14, it says the Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers and eventually tried to stone them. They got away from them, but the same Jews followed them to Lystra where Paul healed a crippled man and got stoned there. In Acts 16, they get beat up and imprisoned in Philippi. In Acts 17, when they were in Thessalonica, more Jews got jealous of Paul and formed a mob and followed him to Berea. In Acts 18, he's opposed and reviled in Corinth. In Acts 19, a silversmith who made silver shrines to the god of Artemis starts a riot against Paul. Talk about opposition. It's a pattern that's been continuing to happen, continuing to boil up. Yet amidst all of this opposition from Jews and from pagan peoples, we see the gospel still being proclaimed and the gospel still growing. The church still growing. The church is still built. The cost of opposition doesn't slow or stop gospel proclamation. It's the reality of the growing church we see in Acts and in Paul's life. We see opposition to the gospel today as well. So we see the cost of opposition, but we also see the cost culminate into really a beautiful and stark purpose statement from Paul in verse 24. You can look at it with me. He says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul set the standard. Talk about a cost. Part of his encouragement to these leaders is showing his willingness to suffer for the gospel. What an example. Proclaiming the gospel is worth fighting for. What value have you placed on your life, on your comfort, 
has that surpassed the value of proclaiming the gospel? At this part, we start to see this main idea of continuing gospel community requires costly gospel work, which shouldn't surprise us, right? The content of what we share, this gospel that we have, is offensive. It's going to cause some friction, right? We, humanity, have rebelled against God. That's going to step on some toes. Like, wait, you're telling me I'm in rebellion right now? Even just starting with our first point, the fact that there's one God and he's the creator of the world, that can offend some people. But just not even that, the fact that we deserve punishment from God. That's hard to hear. And, and beyond that, the fact that we say there's only one way, that Jesus is the only way to receive forgiveness in new life, some people aren't going to like that. Showing people that there's only two ways to live, two choices, will naturally cause backlash. It sh that should be expected, and we should be prepared as we fight for proclaiming the gospel. Sam and Frodo were in a completely different fantasy world. In ours, there is no good outside the gospel to fight for. So we fight for the gospel that has stepped into the darkness and brought the light himself, Jesus. Darkness will pass because Christ has come into the world and has conquered death and will reign as the judge and king of the world. Continuing gospel community requires costly gospel work. Let's look at the heart of his exhortation for continuing this gospel community. We see that in 26 through 32. We see two main exhortations here. The first is to pay attention, to be alert, as he says in 31. Not just of themselves, but of the flock of God, right? Which is an imagery that the Bible uses to describe God's people. Flock or sheep. Right? And these overseers or these under-shepherds help care for God's people. And we continue to, to protect them right, from these wolves. He picks up again on this analogy, the natural predator of sheep. He's saying, he's, you know, I've had this opposition and it's going to continue. It's going to continue after me. He's con constantly reminding them and saying this opposition is going to happen. And so you can only imagine this reminder reverberating in the ears of the elders. Like, okay, we get it. Proclaiming. The gospel is worth fighting for. This, this people, this, this, this body of believers, this, this, this flock is worth fighting for. But, but why? Why are we doing this? Why are we paying this cost? And we get the why here in verse 28. And we see the involvement of the Trinity here. Go ahead and read it with me. It says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to the care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The Holy Spirit owned it, organized it, the God, the Father owns it, and Jesus paid for it with his blood. Why value this? Why is this worth fighting for? Because God values his church. Church, do you see your value? Do you see what God has paid for you, for us? Jesus, our great shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. It may have taken all of your motivation to get here this morning. Or maybe you're struggling at home even right now. 
Do you know your value? Do you know the cost that was paid for you? That's the best cure for depression right there, is seeing the cost God is willing to pay for us. This church that God bought and built, yeah, it's worth fighting for. Paul set the example, Christ set the example. And for it to continue, it's going to require its leaders and its people to continue to pay for the proclamation of this costly gospel. In his second exhortation, we see the how they will continue. We've seen the why, and we will see the how as well. The second exhortation is his commendation of them to God and to the word of his grace. Paul's gospel work has been costly to him. He's put a lot of effort into it, and it will require a lot of the continued effort of the elders as well. But that's not what builds the church alone. It's God, whose church it is anyways, and the word of his grace, which again, if we were to take a step back in Acts and to see this pattern, this is the same word that's been building and pushing the gospel forward, that's been building the church and remaining unmoved despite opposition. Look at it with me as it continues through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Starting in Acts 2.41, I'll just list them for you. It says this, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 4.4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000, the church growing. Acts 6, 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And Acts 19, 20, which is here in this Ephesus area. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Continue, to continue in gospel community requires God and his word. However, remaining true to his word and what it says has become even more costly today. Even Christian culture has fallen to shift and change what they see in God's word so they can live their lifestyle without a cost. Continuing gospel community requires costly gospel work. So I want to end with two questions of implication for us today that we've touched on already. First, am I willing to pay the cost for gospel work? It's testifying to the gospel our highest aspiration. Our cost might differ, but there still is opposition today. Friends and relationships may be lost. Career advancement might be slowed or halted altogether. Even our way of life might be compromised. But remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If we had the chance for last words, would they point to our life lived proclaiming the gospel? Would our last words show that the gospel was worth fighting for? Secondly, we can ask, do I see the value in my gospel community? Not only do you see the cost of the gospel work, but do you see and realize the cost God paid for you, for us? Quick test, look around this room. How do you see the people in this room? Go ahead, look around a little bit. We together are a valuable people. 
bought by the blood of Christ. His blood is what unifies us and makes us valuable anyways. It's not our job that we do, the kind of kids that we raise or the projects we complete. It's being bought by the blood of Christ and finding our identity in him together as his people, his sheep, his flock. Maybe you can get on board with the cost of sharing the gospel, but you get hung up on the church. Jesus you like, but no, not the church. The church, they just abuse power and money. Just give me my Bible, my Jesus, and my coffee, and I'll be all right. Although, unfortunately, wolves do come in and out of the church. They do devour and leave hurting people in their wake. If you've been hurt in that way, I'm deeply sorry. Know that we can place our hope in our perfect great shepherd who defends us and cares for us in ways that only the creator of the world can. But there's a value in God's church. If this gospel and its community is a new idea to you, if you're a guest this morning, this is a great picture for the impact the gospel makes in your life. To proclaim and live for Christ, we first must know and trust him ourselves. And if that's where you're at this morning, I would encourage you to start there. It begins with trusting in him, but it leads to a life of so much more. It starts with a personal relationship, but it doesn't stop. God doesn't save people in isolation. He's saving them to a people, a valuable people. Do you see the value in our gospel community here at Old North? We make value assessments all the time. Many of us possibly shopped a lot this week because we saw a lot of high value items at low value prices. Our money is one way of a value assessment. Our time as well. Look at your calendar. What do you spend the most time doing? Our life is a constant value assessment. How does that transfer into how we value the people of God? It's valuable enough that Jesus bought it with his blood. How's that for a value assessment? But what would it look like if we valued it in this way? How would that play out in how we give, why we give? How would that play out in why and when we attend? Once we see and take the value of God's church for what it is, it no longer becomes just checking a box, doing the right thing, or doing what God tells me to, or, well, maybe even just to get identity. And think, oh, this is my, my community that I get identity from. It's something worth fighting for in our time, our possessions, in our lives because Christ has bought it. Last words are important. Richard Baxter is known for many of his works, one being a book called The Reformed Pastor, where he writes to pastors on this one idea from Paul, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, on this idea of reforming how they think and how they lead their people how they lead the church. And his last song that he sang before he died was one of his own. And so I want to end our time reading the last couple stanzas of his song. Here's what he sings. God is essential love and all the saints above are like unto him made each in his measure. Love is their trade and their constant pleasure. Love aflames in every breast, the greatest and the least. Strangers to this sweet rest, there are not any. Love leaves no place for strife, makes one of many. Lord Jesus, take my spirit. I have thy love and thy merit. Take home thy wandering sheep. 
for thou hast sought it. This soul in safety keep, for thou hast bought it. He bought us, his wandering sheep, his church. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the many blessings even here at Old North, at our church. May we continue to hold your word in your gospel center stage. We thank you for paying the ultimate cost of your life, pouring out your blood for us. Although we'll never face the pain of separation from God again, may you give us boldness to face the pain and cost we encounter today from proclaiming your gospel. Give us your eyes, your heart, to proclaim the gospel in the places we often neglect. Increase our desire to see you change the lives so much that it eclipses our fear of pain and opposition. May we see the value and never grow dull to the cost that you've paid for us. We thank you and we praise you. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.